This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Please, this morning again uh, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll just break into uh, this chapter at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're now coming to uh, the final part uh, regarding spiritual warfare. This is part six, but I think it's part 17 overall as we've been journeying through uh, the book of Ephesians. The final part, by the way, will be tonight. Uh, we'll finish it tonight. And it's an important way to finish tonight. And I don't want you to miss it. And so the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Historians uh, tell us that Roman soldiers had more weapons than Paul uh, lists here, but Paul singles out this particular weapon for special uh, attention because it's the only one that he specifies is for being on the offensive. Everything else we've talked about today is defensive, but this is the offensive weapon. And he made it a type of the Word of God. Now, without this spiritual sword, uh, the enemy of our souls could just literally pound away at us uh, because we would have nothing to resist him with. But thank God he has given us a spiritual weapon that we can resist the evil one, that we don't always have to be on the defensive that we can literally go on the attack where and when it is necessary. Barbarians had swords also, but theirs tended to be long and heavy and unwieldy, so much so they ended up having to carry them on their shoulders. And whenever they used them, you need to have to be particularly strong because in a battle that would be sustained over a, a long period of time, you would very grow very weary and tired. And not only that, but using them because they were unwieldy, uh, you would often be off balance. Once you swung that thing, then at that moment you're off balance, and that's where your enemy could get your vulnerability and come in there on the inside. And so even though it was effective to some degree, it certainly wasn't the best weapon. Others had uh, like, a, like a, a pointed one with just a, like a point at the end, something that you could just stab with. Uh, others had maybe like a cutlass that was sharpened at one edge, and that's all. And all of those played their part and had their place, but the Roman came along, and his sword was like no other on the ancient battlefield. It was revolutionary. It was made of hardened steel. It, it had two sharpened edges and a point that was sharp. 
And even though it didn't look very formidable, because it was only about 18 inches long uh, at the most, compared to the great big heavy ones that the barbarians were using, but yet it was highly, highly effective. It was revolutionary in its day. This was a game changer when it came to face-to-face -face battles uh, on the theater of war. And in fact, it gave him an incredible advantage over any foe he faced. It was technologically well advanced of anything else that others were using. I suppose it was revolutionary in the sense that the Winchester repeating rifle was revolutionary in America, uh, you know, all those years ago. Or the Russian, Russian Kalashnikov, or the Israeli Uzi machine gun, all of those were game changers when it came to soldiers on the battlefield. But, this particular sword, uh, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers were very adept at using it. They were highly trained. And because it was light and not unwieldy, uh, they could use it very quickly. And they could use it over a long period of time. They wouldn't grow weary as quickly as their foes would. And it was really built for end fighting, up in your face fighting. And because they were so highly trained with it, uh, their enemies found it devastating. And so it was something that was greatly feared uh, on the ancient uh, battlefield. Our sword, Paul said, is the word of God. Our sword, he calls it the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He calls it the sword of the spirit because the word of God is authored by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who brought the Word of God about to us. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. This is not something that somebody just made up that thought out of the top of their head. This was inspired by the Holy Spirit. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so men of God, the Holy Spirit prompted them and inspired them to speak and to write the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, the Latin word inspiro is where we get inspiration from, and it means to breathe into. The Greek word is theonustos, God breathed. So God breathed into men this word of God to write this, to record this, to speak this, to show this to us. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 13, but it is written, sorry, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them unto us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's the Holy Spirit who quickens, who energizes the Word of God to us. It's the Holy Spirit who eliminates His Word to our hearts and to our minds. Without the Holy Spirit, this would simply be a history book. Without the Holy Spirit, this would be a book about many things. But because it's breathed by the Holy Spirit, it's a spiritual book. Yes, it's got lots of natural and, and truthful things in it regarding geography or history or whatever. But above and beyond that, it's so different because it's God-breathed. The Holy Spirit has breathed life into this. And this is why we can read this again and again and again and again for all of our lifetime, and it still feeds us, it still speaks to us. It's like no other book on earth because it's breathed by the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's something about the word of God that can penetrate into the deepest recesses of our souls that can penetrate the difference between what we say and what we think and what we hear and what we do. There's something about this, the, the Word of God that gets right deep into us that changes our lives so much in so many ways. Uh, listen to this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost his great sermon. In verse 36 and 37, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Word of God is sharp, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? It had so impacted, when he said those words, it so impacted their lives, they were cut to the very quick, cut to the heart. But it's interesting in chapter 5, verse 30 and 33, he said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be the Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious. And in my margin, it says they were cut to the quick, and they plotted to kill them. Now, isn't that interesting? That the one group, when they heard what Peter said, it penetrated their hearts, and it caused a deep repentance Men and brethren, what shall we do? We're wrong. We realize that now. What you have said has spoken to us. But this other lot, when he speaks to them, they were cut to the quick and they were furious and wanted to kill them. 
The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. It depends on the medium. And the Word of God has that effect. Uh, you may find you're maybe witnessing to somebody, it may be a family member, it may be somebody you met at work, it may be somebody in the street or whatever. And maybe the person you're witnessing to is responsive and they will listen and they will give you a hearing. And the more you talk to them, the more you see they're starting to feel conviction and they're opening up. And then there's other people and they get furious and they visibly change and the hackles rise and they're ready for a fight and I want to call you out and speak French to you and all the rest of it. The Word of God can have that effect because it pierces right to the very heart. And look, chapter 4, which is very familiar to us regarding the temptations of Jesus. Verse 1 of Luke 4, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And he quotes from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Aha! So the devil can read the Bible too and quote it. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone, Psalm 91. The trouble is the devil does know the Word of God and can quote the Word of God, but often it's out of context and will be out of context to what it should be. And so we need to be careful. There's lots of people out there, there's false teachers, doctrines of demons, who can quote you all kinds of scriptures out of context, meaning not meaning what God originally intended. And we need to be careful. That's why we need to know the Word of God, because there's a lot of counterfeit stuff going around. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, or it is written again, one verse and says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.16. <laughs> Think of this for a moment. When the enemy came against Jesus, the only thing he used was the sword of the Spirit. 
was the Word of God. And he didn't even have to get out of Deuteronomy. <laughs> and we have got the whole of the Old Testament and the whole of the New Testament. Jesus was so filled with the Word. Now you say, well, he was the Word made flesh. Yes, he was. But growing up, he had to study the Word. He had to learn the Word. And instantly, when the enemy came against him, he had that sword of the Spirit. And it was in his heart that he could take out and use it against the evil one. He immediately could recall the right and proper scripture to use. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time, telling us that he would come back again and again, which he does with us. It's not a one-time deal. Sure it is. You get the victory today, you can be sure down the road somewhere the enemy's going to come back again. He may come back with the same thing again. So we need to know and have this weapon for our warfare. That morning when David went up onto his balcony, the spring of the year, the time of the year when kings went out to war, but he was comfortable. He felt that everything was under control and he didn't need to be out there on the battlefield. He'd got great soldiers to take care of things for him, but he should have been out there. And instead, he didn't have his armor on. And when he got up onto that balcony and he saw Bathsheba, he was utterly defenseless. And he fell, and great was the fall of him. Had ramifications for the rest of his life. And so we need to be wearing the armor because the enemy will come with all kinds of temptations. Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 1 Peter 2, 2, Peter said, Desire the sincere milk of the word. I know I bang on about it, and I've done for nearly 40 years in here. I keep banging on about the word, the word, the word, the word. It's such a vital weapon we have, as well as inspiring us or enlightening us or encouraging us and strengthening us. It can be a weapon if it's used correctly. Your spirit will only go properly and proportionally to the degree that you feed it the Word of God. Try not eating anything from now to next Friday. See how you feel. See if your legs doesn't get a wee bit wobbly about 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. <laughs> See when you go to bed if you can sleep right away when your belly's rumbling and you need that food. Well, unless you're fasting, you wouldn't think of doing that because you know you need food. You need the energy that food gives you. And your spirit man needs the food of the Word of God. And that's why we've got to feed on it. And just the way that you eat your dinner every night, and some nights you really, really enjoy it, and other nights you have to eat before you even think you've eaten. I mean, you're just shoveling it in there. But you still need it. And some nights it'll taste lovely. With my wife, it always tastes lovely. <laughs> I don't want to be on the pot noodles today, so I'm just, I'm just throwing that in there, you know? <laughs> But all things being equal, sometimes it's more lovely than others. But you still got to eat it. 
You need to maintain your strength. And it's the same with the Word of God. Sometimes you're reading through it, and it's lovely, and it's alive, and you're enjoying it. You say, oh, Lord, that's wonderful, and thank you for it. And other times you just read through it, and you, you close your Bible, and you think, did I get anything out of that today? Or you read the same verse three times in a row because you've forgotten what you've just read. And we're human. There's times it's like that for everybody. But you've got to keep eating it and eating it and eating it and eating it because it'll get down into your spirit and feed your inner man. And that's what you need to do. Let me add to this, add this to you. To develop your spiritual life beyond the level of your understanding of the Word of God is a dangerous thing. To develop your spiritual life beyond your level of understanding the Word of God is a dangerous thing. It will bring you into error and imbalance. See, there's some people that think they're so spiritual we don't need the Word of God. We're super spiritual. All we need is the Holy Spirit. And, and we've been on the road a long time now, so we don't really need the Word of God because, oh, well, we know that. You're heading for error and imbalance. You need your spiritual life to be in balance. And it takes discipline to do this. In Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Notice the downward progression. Walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You start walking with the ungodly and not belong to your standing with them, not belong to your sitting with them. And it's always a downward path that you take. But if your delight is in the law of the Lord, then you will be blessed and God will prosper your life. And if he meditates on the word of God, if you think about it, and that's the reason why many times Christians either stop reading the Word of God or find it boring because they stop asking themselves questions. They stop being inquisitive. You need to ask yourself some questions. Why did the Lord say that to her or to him there? And why did he deal with that person differently than that person? You need to ask yourself questions. Why did the prophet say that to that king at that time? And as you keep asking yourself questions, then it'll cause you to, to check out another portion of Scripture. And there's loads of materials out there, cheap little concordances you can get in paperback to find out where something similar is said somewhere else. And you can cross-reference and compare. And when you start to do that, then you're having a little mini Bible study all by yourself. And it gets you curious. And then you start to wonder about this and wonder about that and look into this and look into that. And then it becomes much more alive to you because you've discovered something. And it's great, as a, particularly as a young Christian, when you read something and you discover it for the first time. You know, you haven't read it anywhere. You just saw it, and the Holy Spirit showed it to you. And it's exciting when that happens. 
He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm. It's got 176 verses. And almost every one of them is referencing and extolling the Word of God. And I think that's why David, by and large, was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And why he was the great psalmist of Israel. Because he loved the Word of God. And he didn't have as much as we have, by the way. But what he had, he knew it. And he loved it. And he talked about it. And he sang about it. And he wrote about it. And it's wonderful. Psalm 119 is a wonderful psalm. It really, really is. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. He just keeps coming at the Word of God and just using different terms. They say the same thing because he, he, just, he just so loves the Word of God. Your Word, verse 11, your Word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do you hide the Word of God in your heart? As you read it and you read it and you read it and you read it and you keep it and you memorize it and you put it in your heart. That's what Jesus did in the temptations. It was in his heart. He had read it from a young boy growing up at his mother's knee. And he had memorized it. And then when the enemy came, it was just there. It was hidden in his heart. All he had to do was just bring it forth. And that's what God wants us to do. Romans 7, 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Let me just read you this here. I've written this down in the cell group sheet. R.A. Torrey, former pastor of the famous Moody Bible Memorial Church, an author of the more than 40 books, was an avid reader and studier of Scripture. And one day a man, Dr. Conglon, approached him complaining that he could get nothing out of his Bible study. Have you ever been there? So listen. The Scripture seemed to be as dry as dust. Please tell me how to study it so it will mean something to me, he said to Dr. Torrey. Torrey replied, read it. I do read it. Read it some more. How? Take some book and read it 12 times a day for a month. What book could I read that many times a day, working as many hours as I do? Torrey said, try Second Peter. The man later said, my wife and I read Second Peter three or four times in the morning, two or three times at noon, two or three times at dinner. Soon I was talking Second Peter to everyone I met. It seemed as though the stars in the heavens were singing the glory of Second Peter. I read Second Peter on my knees, marking passages, teardrops mingled with the crayon colors, and I said to my wife, see how I ruined this part of my Bible? Yes, she said, but as the pages have been getting black, your life has been getting white. <laughs> Second Peter is a very short book, by the way. 
oh, how I love your law, verse 97. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. It's a wonderful thing to read the Word of God and to internalize it. David internalized it. He read it and read it and read it. Then he verbalized it. He spoke it out. So we see his meditation and his verbalization of the word. Meditate simply means to chew the cud, just the way the cow chomps and chomps and chomps and chomps and chomps, fills its belly, lies down, regurgitates, chomps and chomps and chomps and chomps on the same grass until it's fully digested. And that's a good way to deal with the Word of God. Go to the Word of God and just chomp, 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 and then rest a little bit, and then go to the same passage, and then chomp, 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 till you get it fully digested into your spirit, into your heart, till it becomes part of you. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, this is the only time that the word success is mentioned in Scripture. It's implied in many places, but the only time it's actually mentioned, and it's in relation to the Word of God. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. You want to be successful in your Christian life? You want to be successful in your life generally? Then read the Word of God, internalize it and verbalize it, and know it and get it into your spirit. In Revelation 1.16, speaking about the glorified, risen, ascended Christ, it says, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, there's an unusual thing. You'd expect the sword to be in his hand, wouldn't you? But it's in his mouth. A sharp two-edged sword coming out of Christ's mouth. See, the phrase two-edged is interesting. Dystomos. Dystomos, I should say. Dystomos. And it's two words together, di meaning two and stomos, which is really interesting. Because according to Strong's Hebrew and Greek dictionary, it means the mouth. A gash in the face, a mouth implying language, speaking. Two mouths speaking, a two-edged sword, a two-mouthed sword, that literally means. Why is the Word of God called a two-mouthed sword? Because in Ephesians 6, 17, 
It's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And I told you last week, the word, word there is rhema. When Jesus was on the earth, he was the logos of God. He was the embodiment of all that God is and was and had said and was planning and thinking, was embodied in the person of Christ. But when Christ went back to the glory and we're left with the written word of God, this is now the logos of God for us. This is what we read. This is what guides us and guards us and strengthens us and helps us and inspires us. This is the logos of God. But whenever we're reading the Logos of God and God speaks to us out of that personally, then it becomes a rhema word to us. We explained that last week and how that, that word becomes alive to you at that moment. It's not what just God has said that's written down, but what God is saying right now. Now, it's not a new revelation. God's not saying anything different than what he says in his word, but it's new to you. It's a revelation to you at that moment because it's for you personally at that very moment. It becomes a living word to you, a rhyme of word. But this is a word from God's spirit. It's a quickening word that has been quickened to you. It's a spoken word. Rhema has to be a spoken word. It's a two-mouth word. In other words, it comes from God's mouth into your heart. And then from your heart out through your mouth you speak it. It's a two-mouth word. It's a two-edged sword. That's what it means. God speaks it into you from his mouth into your heart, and then you take it from your heart, and then you speak it out. And it becomes a living word to you. It's a promise of God or an admonishment of God or an instruction from God that you speak out. And it becomes a spoken word, a rhema word, a quickened word. Sometimes, occasionally, someone speaks a word that reverberates around the whole world. It becomes immortalized. I mentioned earlier about the word cup coming up. And those of us of a certain age may remember the 1966 World Cup between England and Germany. And England were given them a hiding, one of the very few times they went on to win the World Cup, as you know. So they were beating Germany, and it got right down to the last few final seconds. And Jeff Hurst was racing up the pitch with a ball at his feet. And the crowd who already felt well the match was won, they were ready to get up with their seats to leave, to go. And Kenneth Wilsonholm, the commentator, said these immortal words. And whenever Jeff Hurst, he was just about to boot the ball into the net, and he's keeping his eye on that, he has his eye on the crowd, he's about, he's leaving, and he says, they think it's all over, and then he boots it in the net, and he says, it is now. <laughs> and after 50 years, they still showed that because it was immortalized. Everybody in the world, that was the greatest commentary statement ever made in football, and made him famous for the rest of his life. Who could forget Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream? A highly evocative speech, particularly in the time it became the touchstone for the segregated black population in the South in America. And even today, they continually show that. Or who can forget 
Winston Churchill will fight them on the beaches. It galvanized a whole nation to help to win the war just by words. Or Jack Kennedy saying, ask not what my country can do for me, but rather ask what can I do for my country? And that became famous. Or Neil Armstrong. In July 1960, I'm the first man to set foot on the moon. This is one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. And it reverberated around the whole world. And so once in a while, maybe in a generation, maybe in a hundred years, maybe in two hundred years, somebody will say something that gets the attention of the whole world. But the Bible says, the word of the Lord endures forever. Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Forever, O Lord, the psalmist says, your word, <laughs> your word is established in the heavens. Hallelujah. And nothing will ever take the word of God. Nothing can take it away. It is incomparable, it is unconquerable, it is undefeatable, it is infallible, it is inerrant. It is forever settled in heaven. And that's the sword of the Spirit which the Lord has given us. And that's the word that he promises to perform. Jeremiah 1 and 12, I will hasten my word to perform it. The new King James, I am ready to perform my word. The NIV, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The Amplified, I am alert and active, watching over my word to perform it. Isaiah 55 and 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And so this morning, Beloved, you have the sword of the Spirit in your hand and hopefully in your heart. And the more you have it in your hand, the more it will be in your heart. Read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Study it, think about it, meditate on it, chew the cud, get it deep into your spirit. And then when trouble comes and stuff happens, it'll come to you. It'll comfort you. It will strengthen you. And when the enemy comes knocking at your door, and you open it, you'll have a sword in your hand. The sword of the Spirit, that to my sword to come against the evil one. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without any defenses, neither have you left us without something to attack with. We bless you today for your holy, inspired, living word that breathes life into us, that inspires us, that strengthens us, that protects us, that causes us to be able to fight against the evil one. So we give you thanks, Lord, that it's alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces right into the very center of our being. So we bless you and we give you thanks for it today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.